Isn't that incredible song? It's an amazing song. I love it. Um, it's really unique too. That video. It's all one continuous shot. I don't know if you noticed that, but every time they turn around, something else has been added to it. I just thought it was amazing. Is he worthy? Yes, he is. Um, I mentioned last week that um, I loved hymns, and that the verses that we were covering last week and this week were believed to be uh, hymns that the early church sang to constantly remind themselves, affirm what they knew to be true. And I love this song, while it's not a hymn, uh, it has the responsiveness to it. And it's asking those questions that we all ask and just affirming our faith. Um, you know, reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, praying the Bible, singing the Bible, using it as the bedrock for everything that we do. It's a constant reminder. And this song actually comes from Revelations chapter 5. And when I thought we were talking about... Um, you know, the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus and what he went through, uh, this song came to mind. And I just wanted to read this part out of uh, Revelations chapter 5. It said, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty um, angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's pretty, pretty amazing. That's where that comes from, Revelations chapter 5. Um, it's quite a visual. And what it's talking about there, and I think I mentioned this in, uh, in Ruth when we followed that, is it talks about this scroll that uh, Jesus opens. And there was another document in that culture that matches the description of what we're reading here. And it is a title deed to a piece of property. And when somebody had a piece of property, they owned the deed and it was written on the inside who owned it. But if they came to a point where they could no longer fulfill their um, financial obligations and paying for the land, then they had to sell it. And what would happen is they would take it and they would write on the back of the scroll everything that needed to be paid off or fulfilled for it to be one back. And then it was sealed with seven seals. And every year, another seal that stood for the years that it would have to go out. And if at any time during that period of seven years, they could pay it off and then they would own it again. They had met all the requirements. And what it's stating here is John's writing this. And he's looking at the scroll and they're asking who can redeem the title deed to earth. And nobody's stepping forward. And it just begins to weep because it looks like the earth is going to stay in Satan's hands forever. And then here comes Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Because he was slain, he redeemed 
the earth back to him. He redeemed everything back to God. And he took back the title deed because he was the only one that could fulfill those obligations. And it's just such an incredible visual um, as we're talking about the humiliation. And then this week, the exaltation of Jesus and what he did for us. Uh, last week, we talked about WHJD, what has Jesus done? And before we could look at you know, our response to that, we needed to look at what he had done. And we detailed, you know, the, uh, the path that Jesus took downward uh, in submission and in humility. Uh, I was thinking about this. You're going to laugh because I know what song we could have sang this morning. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you can do the hand motions with me. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave. No, to the grave. To the grave to the sky. He lifts his name on high. <laughs> that's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, we were. That's an old song, and uh, we went to this church. We were church shopping in uh, Fort Wayne, and we went into this church, and it was like a time warp. Like I stepped back 20 years, and they sang this song. And everybody's doing the hand motions, and I'm like, oh. you know, it's not my kind of church, but. No, I was, I was thinking about that today. We could have sang that song, but we started with Jesus's divinity, his deity. Uh, he always has been. He always will be God. And then we moved to his humility, his humility in stepping into his creation and becoming one of us. And in that, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his divine powers, of his design, of his divine uh, prerogatives. And he did that so that he could live a life in the power of the Holy Spirit and experience and feel everything that you and I experience and everything that we feel. That is part of the reason for the incarnation, for him becoming a man and emptying himself and dying on the cross for you and me. And then we talked about his humanity, about he came to become one of us so that he could become our perfect high priest, so that he could stand in the gap. Uh, the high priest was the person who represented the people to God and represented God to the people. And I was thinking about that. That's actually a pretty terrifying position to be in, to represent the people to God and God to the people. And once a year, his big job, once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. He would go behind the veil and he would take the blood and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, was called the mercy seat. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And when he did that, then there was atonement. There was forgiveness for the people. And Jesus was the perfect high priest. I mean, fully man, fully God. He was the one that could stand in the gap and be our representative to God and God's representative to us. Only he didn't take the blood of a lamb. He became the lamb that was slain. He offered himself as the sacrifice. And when he did, that veil, that veil tore. Uh, I've heard it said that that veil was so thick, so big, that if you attached it to two modern day tanks and drove them in opposite directions, that they couldn't rip it in half. And yet, when Jesus died, he ripped it from top to bottom. No longer a need for a human high priest. And, you know, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, uh, from that point on, there has not been a way for them to make sacrifices in the temple. So there hasn't been a way for them to get forgiveness of their sins. That's why they call it the Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, uh, they stand at this wall, which is the only remaining part of the temple that's left. 
And so they go up there and they offer, you know, they offer prayers and they recite scripture and they do all those things. There's lots of weeping and crying because there is no way for them to offer sacrifices anymore. And if you talk to a Jewish person and you ask them, how are you going to get into heaven? What are you going to do with your sin? Because you have no way to atone for it. And, you know, their position is pretty much like everybody else in the world is they say, you know, you know, we're God's chosen people, but I hope that. You know, my works, my good will outweigh my bad. Even though, you know, atonement has already been offered to them in the person of Jesus Christ, they reject him. There is not forgiveness of sins. And that is something to wail about. Last week, we covered the path downward in service and humility. This week, we'll look at the path upward from humiliation to exaltation. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we will do verses 9 through 13 today. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, I have a, a good friend of mine, and uh, he was an old Baptist um, minister, and you may have heard this before, but when you see the word therefore, you're supposed to back up and see what it's there for. <laughs> and last week we talked about Jesus' path downward in humility, and this week we're talking about his way up. Uh, Jesus started his way up when he resurrected, and it's interesting because that's the way we start our way up. And we do that through the symbolism of baptism. We say we are buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life. When he was resurrected, that started his way up. And then the ascension, when he took his disciples out close to Bethany, is what it says. He took them out as far as Bethany, and he blessed them, and he gave them final instructions, and he ascended to heaven. And when he got there, he had a coronation, a coronation where he was given dominion and power and sovereignty over everything. And then finally to his intercession, his current intercession, he sits at the right hand of the Father praying for you and I today. Have you ever had somebody come up to you, either on church or they called you and they said, man, I just felt like God put you on my heart today and I prayed for you today. I just wanted you to know that. And you're like, oh man, that is awesome. Thank you for praying for me. And it makes you feel really good. But how much cooler is it that Jesus is sitting there praying for us? He is praying for you. He is not pacing for you. He is praying for you. He's not anxious about whether or not you're going to make it. He's praying for you. Um, interesting because Jesus told Peter, he said, you know, Satan has demanded to have you guys so that he could sift you. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that when you are converted or when you are back, you will strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew that he was going to make it, but he prayed for him. Um, last week I talked about Absalom and David and the contrast between these two sons of David, between Absalom and Jesus, the son of David. Um, and we did that because... The Bible, what God has done for us is for every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament picture. So we get an Old Testament picture, and we talked about that last week. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Everything does, and then everything in the New Testament reveals who he is. And that's exactly how we should read the Bible. When we pick it up and read it, we should look for Jesus in every verse of the scriptures. There are several Jesus-type figures, several pictures in the Old Testament that kind of picture or portray what is coming in the future of a Savior that's coming. 
And when we talk about the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus, I think back to a little boy in a multicolored coat in uh, Joseph. And Joseph was a perfect picture of our Savior that was to come. He was unique because nowhere in his story is any sin ever recorded. We don't get any um, record of anything wrong that Joseph did. Now, he was sinful. He had a sin nature, obviously, he did, but it's not recorded for us because he is a picture of our Savior to come. He is a picture of the gospel. Um, he was born into a family with lots of brothers. Uh, he was the precious son of his father. And uh, he came to his brothers. His brothers rejected him. They did not like him. They were jealous of him because he would constantly tell them things and relate dreams to them that they couldn't understand. That one day he would be in authority over them, that he would rule over them. And as you can imagine, that created some interesting family dynamics, uh, interesting Thanksgiving dinners when you told your, your folks and your brothers that one day they were going to be bowing down to you. And he was giving special privileges that weren't given to a younger son. Uh, he was given this coat. We said coat with you know many colors and also had big sleeves. And the point of it was that he was given a symbol of authority. If you had a coat like this, you weren't out in the fields doing work. You weren't watching sheep. You weren't watching cattle. You were part of authority because you had this coat on. And his brothers knew this and they hated him because of it. And one day when he came out to them, um, you know, you know the story. They put him in the pit and they sold him off to slave traders that were headed down to Egypt. And if you remember, we've talked about it before. Egypt is always a picture of the world, right, in the Bible. He was falsely accused of assaulting his master's wife and he got put in prison for two years. Uh, he was about as low as he could go, as good as dead. And then at the appointed time, at the right time, God exalted him, raised him up if you will. And he interprets Pharaoh's dream and Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything. He's only second to Pharaoh. Um, and then a famine hits the land because he interpreted the dream, because God gave him the interpretation. He had made preparations beforehand. And because he had had a plan beforehand in storing up food for the famine, he saved everybody. And then his brothers came searching for food, right? They came to him, but they did not recognize him. And they appeared before Joseph. And they bowed to him just like he had prophesied, these brothers who had rejected him. And he forgave them, not, he didn't wipe them out because of their sin, um, but he provided for them. He made a way for them to be brought in and forgiven. Uh, Joseph was also given an Egyptian bride. His bride was Asenath, that's the name of her, and she was an Egyptian bride. And her father was the priest, it says he was the priest of On, of the city of On. And On means light. That's why we turn on the light. It means light or sun. I just made that up. I don't know if that's true. On means light or sun. And it was the place, it was the seat of sun worship. S-U-N, not S-O-N. Uh, that is where they worship the sun and worship the light. Um, but it tells us in Jeremiah and then also in Ezekiel, it prophesies that the city of the sun would be a city of destruction, but that eventually idolatry would cease and worship of the true God would be established. But Asenath, this earthly bride, was given to Joseph and she was brought into the family. And then at the very end of the story, Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And his father Jacob is getting close to death. He's very old. And so Joseph brings his sons to Jacob. And interesting because uh, Jesus or God changed his name to Israel, right? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And a lot of the time he's referred to as Jacob, usually when he is acting in the flesh. 
But when he is walking in the spirit, when he's doing what God has instructed him to do, his name is called Israel. And says he brought them to Israel and Israel blessed them. And so Joseph takes his boys and he puts Manasseh and Ephraim in such a way, because Manasseh was the older one, that Jacob's right hand, his right hand of blessing would go out on Manasseh. And Jacob does something really strange, led by the spirit. He goes like this. And he puts his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. And Joseph kind of freaks out and he tries to fix his hands and say, whoa, 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 you're blessing the wrong person. Um, but he gives the blessing, the inheritance, the double portion to Ephraim. And I think that's interesting. Um, he gives him the portion and he says that God will make him a great number and a group of nations is the blessing that is pronounced over Ephraim. And all of that, all of that is a picture of the gospel. Jesus, the favored son of God, came to earth, was rejected by men. In John 1, it tells us that he came to his own, but his own did not accept him. They accepted him. They did not receive him. Um, and false accusations were made about him. He was put in a, in a pit, in a tomb, literally. And he didn't just interpret, you know, he didn't just interpret prophecy. He fulfilled it when he rose again. Um, and he was exalted because of this plan. This was always the plan. This wasn't an emergency plan that they came up with. It says before the foundation of the world, this was the plan. His sacrifice that offered salvation to the Jewish people and then ultimately to us. And he was given dominion. He was given power over everything. He was given an earthly bride, right? In the church, we, the Gentiles, are his earthly bride. And we were the ones, we were the younger ones. We weren't supposed to receive the blessing. Nobody thought that we were supposed to receive the blessing, but we were the ones that received the inheritance. We were the ones that were brought in. It's a perfect picture of what Jesus did when he humbled himself to be exalted. And Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Um, I read this week that if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. It was so brutal. It was so, um, you know, just terrible that you could not be crucified if you were a Roman citizen. Um, they had perfected it. They had, um, you know, gotten to the point where they could extract the fullest amount of torture and pain out of somebody before they died. And because of that, they did not use that on Roman citizens. Um, and because Jesus chose to do that, God exalted him and gave him the name above every other name um, because he chose to redeem mankind through his obedience and his death. In Hebrews 12, 2, it tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. What does that mean to despise the shame? John Piper put it this way. I thought he did a very good job. John Piper, obviously awesome. And he wrote this. He said, listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think you have power? Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, joy, joy. That is my power, not you, shame. You are worthless. You are powerless. You think you can distract me? I won't even look at you. I have set joy before me. Why would I look at you? You are ugly and despicable. You are almost finished. You cover me now as with a shroud. Before you could say so there, I will throw you off like a filthy rag. I will put on my royal robe. You think you're great because even last night you made my disciples run away? You are a fool, shame. You are a despicable fool. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, they are my sacred suffering and will save my disciples, not destroy them. For you are a fool. Your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Farewell, shame. It is finished. 
Paul compares this life, this Christian life that we're living to a race. Um, and he encourages the churches to keep going. Don't give up. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize, on Jesus. And as we run the race, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the exaltation of Jesus that he had at the end of his race, on the final lap of his race, because he ran it with joy. And when you and I finish our race, You know what, when I came in this morning, the gal uh, at the front desk warned me. She said, hopefully there's not any fire alarms today. And I was like, that's a weird thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm like, that's weird. Because she said that they had a, I don't know if somebody pulled it, I hope not. But she said that they were having like a mother-daughter tea dance, or, you know, mother-daughter tea here. And they had it set up, and she said there were so many moms and daughters here, and there were people outside in the grass, and for some reason, the fire alarm went off. And like she said, it was terrible. I'm like, I don't know why you're telling me this, but <laughs> apparently there's a reason. All right. The trumpet will sound. <laughs> we will go up because he despised the shame. First Peter 5, 6 says this. This is really you know hard to like steer this back on track. <laughs> He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Um, God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. All that Jesus set aside when he came to earth was restored to him and more with his triumph over sin. And when Paul writes the name that's above every name, he's not simply talking about his identity, his earthly identity. Um, when you say the name Jesus now, everybody knows what you're talking about. Uh, they know who you're talking about. But back then, the name of Jesus was so common. It would have been like, you know, Bob or Mark. I mean, it was, uh, it was a regular name because there was a Jesus of Canaan. There was a Jesus of Capernaum. That's why they said it was Jesus of Nazareth because it was so common. Um, and I neglected to say this last week, but when we talked about Absalom, and it tells us that he was flawless from head to toe, uh, he, was, he didn't have any blemishes on him, but he was full of flaws on the inside. But Jesus, who was sinless, was flawless on the inside, was very plain on the outside. Um, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 50. He was so common looking that when Judas brought the soldiers into the garden of Gethsemane, 
he said, listen, I'm the one that I kiss, I'm going to kiss him on his cheek. That's going to be the sign. That's the guy that you need to arrest. And he'd been in the temple all the time he was in Jerusalem. But he was so plain looking that they would not have recognized him. So he's given a name. He is exalted with a name that is above every name. What is that name? Well, we don't really know. Um, you know, the, the Jewish people, when uh, they wrote the name of God, Yahweh, they only used consonants. There was, you know, Y-H-W-H, because they said you cannot say the name of God. You should not utter the name of God. So they only used the consonants. They didn't use the vowels. So we really actually today don't know how it's pronounced. And so we say Yahweh or Yehovah or Jehovah. And so that's our best guess. But the name that he is given um, is a title that manifests his lordship, his dominion. Uh, in Hebrews 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he inherited is much more excellent than theirs. So Jesus has a title bestowed upon him, a coronation that specifies his lordship, his complete sovereignty over everything. His exaltation was the restoration of what Jesus had eternally possessed before he came human. But it wasn't merely a reversal of the incarnation. This was the father giving the son honor and tribute that he could only receive after his obedient, redemptive sacrifice in obedience to the father's will. In verse 10 here, it says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In 2 Timothy 4, it tells us that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Now, that does not mean that everyone is going to be saved. Uh, I say that because a number of years ago, there was a, you know, a really well-known pastor who wrote a book and that was his premise, that eventually everyone would be reconciled to God through Jesus. Um, and, you know, because everybody is going to bow, everyone is going to confess, eventually that will happen. And he took a lot of verses out of context. Uh, it was very sad, actually. His, his platform was taken away from him. He no longer has a voice in the evangelical church because of that. Uh, because in Hebrews 9.27, it's very clear. It says, it is appointed once for man to die, and then comes the judgment. Simply acknowledging him as God is not necessarily evidence of a saving relationship with him. Uh, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. Um, this was in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It was in chapter 7. Uh, and then he said, after that, he will say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Um, everyone will confess in that day. You will not be able to deny it. You will not be able to second guess it. Everyone will declare that he is Lord. But notice who the knowing is dependent on. It doesn't say, depart from me, you never knew me. It says, I never knew you. And if you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ, if you have accepted his sacrifice and his blood washes away your sins and his righteousness is what clothes us, then he knows your name. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was to show people you can't do it on your own. You can't do it in your own righteousness. You need a savior. You need a mediator. And I am that savior. I am that mediator is what Jesus was telling people. You cannot enter the kingdom based on what you do. You have to enter in by what I do. 
And why is all this done? Why is Jesus exalted? Well, it's all to the glory of God the Father. That's why the plan was put in place. That's why we do what we do. Jesus, the whole time he was on earth, was pointing everyone to the Father. When he would perform miracles, people would, it said people gave glory to God. And that's who he pointed to while he was here on earth. Okay, last part, almost done. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, there's that word again, therefore. Uh, because of these things, because Jesus humbled himself and because he was exalted, keep going. You did them when I was with you. When I was there, you guys were all over it. But it's so much more important that you guys continue to do it even when I'm away. Because I'm not always going to be here. In fact, I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. So you guys need to work out your own salvation. Um, salvation has many aspects. But our regeneration brings us into a relationship that has obligations. Uh, there are things that we have to do. Uh, Jesus said, those who do the will of my Father... Uh, the first of which was just to be obedient to the things that Jesus has asked us to do. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it doesn't mean that we're working for our salvation. Uh, we're simply putting feet to our faith. That's the way I like to say it. We're putting feet to our faith. Uh, we're working it out. We're making it operational. That makes sense. Because we are now set apart. Because we're sanctified. We are to live differently. We're to work it out in our lives. Uh, Paul, just like any pastor, just like any small group leader is telling them, look, don't make me, don't make my relationship with you dependent on your spiritual progress. Like you can't just depend on me. You have to own it. You have to be responsible for it on your own. And if you don't work out your spiritual muscles, you're going to be steamrolled. You're going to be weak and you're going to get knocked over rather easily. Um, you know, all of us could ask ourselves, why do we keep struggling in that area? Why do we keep falling in that area? But a question that we need to ask ourselves when that happens is, how's our workout? You know, are you working out your spiritual muscles? I mean, that's the reason why I got this bigger Bible, this thicker Bible. <laughs> we got to work it out in our lives. Work out your spiritual muscles. And it's an individual responsibility. Remember when Jesus told the disciples, he said, listen, get in the boat and go to the other side. Uh, and I'll join you over there, which seems like a really strange thing to me. Maybe there were a bunch of boats over there. Jesus is going to take the boat over by himself. Maybe they had just finally reached the point where they stopped asking questions and just were obedient. But they started to go across and the huge storm rises and Jesus meets them walking on the water. Right. And everybody thinks he's a ghost. and They start to freak out. And Peter says to him, he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. And Jesus is like, all right, come on, Peter. And he walks out on the water. And for lots of sermons about that. But what would happen if John had gotten out of the boat? Or if Matthew had gotten out of the boat or James? I'd suggest to you that if anybody else had gotten out of the boat, they would have sank. Because Jesus was speaking specifically to Peter. And what I'm getting at is that he works in all of us specifically and uniquely. And what are the things that he's put inside of you specifically that he wants you to do? Um, we are all, that's why we're called the body. We're called the body of Christ. We all have different functions, um, but we serve the same God with the same purpose, and that's to bring him as much glory as we can while we live here on earth. Paul is telling them the same Lord that works inside of me is the same Lord that works inside of you. You and I can carry out what Paul is talking about here because God has put inside of us an innate desire 
to follow his will. Once the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, he has put a desire in you to chase him, to want to do his will. And when we press in, he gives us that ability through the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't happen, man. Yeah. Christy's all over yeah. it. That would never happen, not in a million years, man. <laughs> uh, you must have a good message. Somebody needs to hear it, right? Alicia and I were talking about it Thursday night. We said, you know, um, this battle that goes on, you know, between our flesh and our spirit, as soon as the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, as soon as you accept Jesus and the Holy Spirit fills you, there's a battle from that moment on that you will have for the rest of your life because your spirit man and your flesh man are warring against each other and it is not going to end. But what you can do is strengthen your spirit man to the point where your flesh is so weak that all you have to do is just push him over. But so many times we leave our sword in its sheath. We don't sharpen it. We don't lift it. And when we don't do that, we can't fight back and our spiritual man becomes so weak that he gets steamrolled by our flesh. So if we work it out, we can get to the point where we render our flesh useless. Um, because we have a real battle, we have a real enemy. That's why we need to really work out with fear and trembling. Um, and I was talking, I think I was talking to, to Devin, but uh, what does that mean, fear and trembling? Um, it just means we have to be purposeful. We have to be intentional about our walk with the Lord. Um, if we're not going to, we're not going to have success. We're not going to win if we don't have a plan. Uh, I read this story about a British sculptor and he had a friend that I had heard of at least, uh, George Bernard Shaw, he was a writer. And so you've got a sculptor and a writer and uh, they're hanging out one day at the sculptor's house and Shaw sees this huge stone in the corner and he asks the sculptor, he's like, what are you gonna do with that stone? And he's like, I don't know, I, I haven't decided yet, I'm still making plans. And Shaw was like, you plan out all your work like that, you know, that much? He's like, I changed my mind like multiple times a day. And the sculptor said, well, that's fine with a four-ounce manuscript, but uh, for a four-ton four piece of rock, you're going to need a lot more planning. Uh, God puts that desire inside of us to follow his will, and we can carry it out uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit when we work our spiritual muscles. And this is another key to joy. We're not working for our salvation. We're not working on our salvation. We're working it out. Uh, you've probably heard the saying, when you fail to plan, you're planning to fail, right? That's an important thing. We hear that a lot. If you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. And I read this article and it had some really good, um, some really good points on what happens when we fail to plan. And I'll put them up here. Uh, but when we fail to plan, we become self-focused. We need to work on our salvation because when we fail to plan, we become very self-focused. Pride and self-centeredness are the enemies of our faith. So how do we combat that? Well, we become God-focused, right? We focus on Jesus. We do that by reading the word, by submitting in prayer. Uh, and when we do that, you know, we look at the life of Jesus. And Jesus' life was all about pointing to the Father and loving on other people, serving on other people. So that is the example that we need to follow. We need to give glory to God and we need to serve others the way that Jesus did. The second thing that happens when we fail to plan is we waste our time. We become big time wasters when we become, you know, when we're unintentional. Um, and what we need to do is we need to redeem the time. Uh, our time is short. 
And the devil loves nothing more than to see us just waste our time here on earth when we could be about the things of God. The third thing that happens is we don't prioritize. Uh, the tyranny of the urgent will rule our life. If you do not make time for the things that are important, whether it is your spiritual walk or your relationships or your job or your school, um, it ain't going to happen. So you have to prioritize. And the answer to that is being intentional. <laughs> you have to make time for it. You have to do it on purpose. Uh, the fourth thing that happens when we fail a plan is we just develop a losing attitude. Uh, this book of joy that we've been going through talks more about our mindset and how we think than any other epistle that he wrote. And if we want God to change our heart, we have to first change our mind. You change your mind and God will change our heart and that'll change our attitude. The fifth thing that can happen is we just check out. Right, we put it on cruise control. Uh, Hebrews 10 tells us not to neglect meeting together as the habit of some, but to meet together all the more as we see the day approaching. Um, I think we see the day approaching. Things are getting a little bit out of control. Um, now's not the time to be skipping out. Now's not the time to be going on cruise control. Now's the time to press in. Sixth thing that happens, we argue and disagree. Um, seems like there's some arguing and disagreement in the church today. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, Facebook has done some good things, but man, it is a place where there's a lot of division happening because of all of the fighting that goes on. Um, all of it really just reveals a prideful heart is the bottom line, because we want to fight to be right instead of fighting for unity. Um, number seven, never study the Bible. If we never sharpen our sword, if we never take it out of its sheath, if we never fight the enemy, um, then we're going to be defeated quite easily. Uh, don't ever say that God's not speaking to you when your Bible sits closed all the time. If you want to hear what God is saying, if you want direction in your life, if you want to know what his will for your life is, open the Bible and be intentional about it. Um, we can have the worship team come back up. I didn't say that a few minutes ago, but I got distracted with the trumpet blast. <laughs> when we look at the exaltation, oh yes, I'm almost done, and then I'm going to have you share. Yes, uh, Julie's going to share something with us, something that happened in her life. She's got a testimony, and I love testimonies. It's kind of like the song, uh, the responsiveness of reminding ourselves of the things that God has done and what he's doing in our lives. It's awesome to get testimonies from people too, to hear what God is doing, and he's active. Uh, but when we look at his um, exaltation and how he ran the race in spite of the pain, in spite of the suffering, um, we're given hope that we can hold on to and the joy that's ours when we humble ourselves under his hand. Um, in humility every day, just asking God, what is it that I can do today to bring you glory? Um, you've put that desire in me and you've given me the ability to carry it out, Lord, through the Holy Spirit. Um, so all of us need to work out our spiritual muscles. And when we work it out, it gets worked in. If we want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, we can't be spiritual couch potatoes. Is he worthy? Yes, he is. You want to share With joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong